We return again this afternoon to 1 Kings chapter 17. We begin to read at verse 8, uh, the beginning of this morning's sermon. And we'll read through to the end of the chapter to verse 24. And our text will begin at verse uh, 17, verse 17 to 24. The holy and infallible word of the Lord our God. At 1 Kings 17 and verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and, and die. And Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, and make me a small cake from it first, and bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry, until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick, and his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me? to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. And he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out on the child three times, and he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. And the Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is a truth. And we focus especially on that last verse, the testimony of that poor widowed woman. <clears throat> congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, things were going quite well for that pagan widow and her son and the prophet Elijah who was staying with her. 
Though the famine prevailed in all of Israel and all the surrounding territory, we see that when God judges his people, the nations and the peoples around also experienced something of that judgment too. There was famine there as well, but in her own house there was plenty. There was lots. By the word of the Lord, her bin of flour did not get used up, and her jar of oil did not run dry. We would say it was an ongoing miracle of God to this poor family, the ongoing power of God's gracious goodness. Now, to what extent faith was living in the heart of this widow, this pagan widow, we can't really say for sure at this time. It probably doesn't need to be answered. Yet we know she indeed was obeying the command of Elijah to first fetch him that, uh, that cake, that, uh, that, that piece of bread and that, and that water. And she, of course, hoped that God would deliver on his promise to her as well. And he did immediately, of course. So there she goes, uh, continuing to trust in the Lord. It seems all these many days, how many it was, the Bible doesn't say, but it would have been a, a good chunk of time. And we might well think, well... It's easy to trust in the Lord when things are going fine. It's easy to say, yes, Jehovah is my God when you have all you need. And there's plenty of food in the pantry and there's lots of money in the bank and your kids are healthy and everything's going just great. It's easy to trust in the Lord. But then is our trust real, congregation? Or might we perhaps at times be trusting those good things that he gives us? Living for the gifts rather than the giver. Our Lord God this morning, this afternoon, congregation gives us as this theme, the Lord leads a pagan widow and us to completely trust in his word. Completely trust in his word. In verse 17 we read, Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to, and to kill my son? Let's consider first congregation that this widow feels betrayed by the prophet's word, and also by his God. Everything was going just great, and suddenly her son becomes sick, and his sickness goes from bad to worse real quick, and the poor boy, he dies. The text tells us that he had no more breath left in him. And the first thing she does is confront Elijah. What have I to do with you, she says, O man of God. In other words, Look, I didn't call you here. It wasn't my idea for you to come to my house and to bring all these good things into my life uh, through the power of your God. I didn't, I didn't ask you to come and to help me. I didn't have you come to give life to me and my boy and now only to lose it. And she implicates Elijah and Elijah's God in verse 17, or sorry, verse 18. She says... Um, uh, have you come to uh, bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? Her words are pretty direct. You have come to kill my son. And so she feels betrayed. Why is this happening to me is the kind of question that would probably be going through her mind. If your God has given me 
given me and my son life for such a long time now. Why does he now suddenly take it away? It made no sense to her whatsoever. This seemed perhaps like a cruel joke to her. It was not fair. It was not good. Better to have never seen Elijah. Better to have never heard of his God in the first place. And then, of course, still to starve than than to have received food and life from him for so many days, only to have him kill her son now. Could she still trust in him now, after he has killed her son? Or why should she trust him now, when he has done this to her? There's a sense of betrayal, I believe, a sense of uh, this being... Unjust, not right, not good. What purpose? Had not Elijah given her the promise of life from God? If she only would believe and obey his word, his promise. What are we to make of this congregation? Because these kinds of situations also come into our lives too. Is God still good when he suddenly sends tragedy and trial into our life and even sends death into our families? Is God then still good? Is he then still worth believing? Are the promises in his word then suspect or are they still good to be counted on, to be believed? And at the end of each day that you've grieved, you're still able to say, yes, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken, blessed be the name of the Lord. We remember Job. He was in the same kind of a situation. Are his promises of blessing then still trustworthy? Do you still honor God then as your heavenly father? Your heavenly father. We know what fathers mean. To be trusted. To be depended upon. To be loved. To be loved. Congregation, this tragedy in your life somehow contradict the goodness of God. Does tragedy in our life in any way conflict with the goodness of God in our lives? Or might we then feel somewhat betrayed as well? Or might we be a bit disenchanted with God, as if to say, well, he's not quite all I expected him to be. This grieving widow had only one answer, all she could say. Verse 18, O man of God, have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And you know what? Elijah has no answer. Sometimes the preacher has no answer. All he can do is listen to the heartbreak and the mourning and the tears of a fellow parishioner. Elijah couldn't say. By this time, of course, she knew him to be a godly man. He had never abused his privileges there. He had never in any way uh, taken advantage of her. He lived upstairs in his own apartment on on the flat top of the house, and she was in the house, of course, so everything there was perfectly in good moral order. 
She knew he was a godly man. He was a prophet of a holy God. And yet she knew he also was a prophet of a God who, who, who does punish his people when they do not trust in him. He is the God who can even make the rain to stop so it doesn't fall upon his own people even. And he even brings famine upon his own people to, to appropriately chastise and punish them. In her own pagan mind, she knew that a nation's gods must be respected and they must be listened to and they must be uh, uh, paid, so to speak, in some ways. Otherwise, those gods can turn on you. And so she figures Elijah's God is probably doing the same thing with all the other gods of all the nations do as well. If you offend them and not favor them, they can punish you back or cause all kinds of evil things to come in your life. So her pagan mind perhaps was operating, her, operating here. And pagan or not, she was also aware of her sinfulness. Call it what you want, but every man knows deep in his own heart that there's something not right between him and the God who exists. She had that sense within her own self and realized that her life too was in conflict with the holy expectations of Elijah's holy God. And the death of her son now triggers an awareness of this, perhaps like never before in her life. And, and now this God is finally punishing her too. Elijah, have you come to me to simply bring my sin to remembrance through the killing of my son? You know, she's not a, she's not a stupid woman at all. She understands things. You've got to give her credit for that. But here's the thing, congregation. What hope does she now have? This God who has blessed her so much with food and drink now proves unforgiving. As if to say, he can be a hard God too. Have you brought my sin to remembrance? And so to kill my son? Well, what of it, we say? Why now this God in my life? We might ask the same when we go through terrible tragedies, trials, sorrows, and death. And God suddenly disrupts our lives too in our quiet, peaceful existence when things were going hunky-dory for, for a long time. Elijah has no answer, and yet he has to give an answer because he is, after all, the prophet of the Lord, and what do prophets do but bring the word of the Lord of God to bear upon his people, and in this case as well, upon this poor pagan widow, for he was surely sent to her for a very specific purpose. This was not just God kind of spinning his wheels. No, this was, this was very purposeful for Israel to know, for us to know, to be comforted as well. And surely, of course, also this poor pagan widow. So Elijah must give an answer and bear upon her soul with this answer. 
And so we see in the second place, God uses his prophet to verify the truth of his word. That's the, the key thing here this afternoon. God has to demonstrate that his word is real, it is true, it is to be trusted, it is verifiable, it is rock-solid granite upon which to build our lives out of which the promises of God flow and the salvation of God is manifested. So Elijah has got to say to do something and uh, all he can say at first is, give me your son. Give me your son. Verse 19. And so he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. And then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, why have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son. Elijah also knows that God has brought the boy of that widow, brought his life to an end, has killed her son. Now congregation, we must not conclude in a situation like this that God is the one who only sends the good things in our lives and all the bad things, they come from the devil. As if to say, God sometimes cannot trump the devil's tactics and bring misery in our life and God really wasn't responsible for that at all. No, that is really unbiblical thinking completely. We read in Isaiah 45, 7, God saying, I make peace and I create calamity. God says, I create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. Never forget that biblical truth. It's the Lord who does these things. And yet Elijah is baffled. He's perplexed. He's distressed. Oh, his question in verse 20 is not, why have you done this, Lord? His question is not a rebuke of God either, but he realizes God has done it. That's the thrust of the question. Verse 20, he cried out to the Lord. He said, O Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And it's an anguishing kind of a cry. He has seen the distress of this poor widow's heart, her, her aching, troubled heart, and, and he sees that God has done this. God already had severely afflicted his unfaithful covenant children, but now this tragedy too on this poor widow. And as God's prophet, he has no answer. And you surely would have, would have, would have thought if God had the power to keep that bin of flour full and the power to keep that jar of oil from never running dry, then God surely could have kept this boy alive too, right? From whatever illness he had, he could have kept him alive. Oh, was it her sin? Was that really the issue? Elijah doesn't make a point of that. He doesn't address the question at all. He avoids it. And the thing is, therefore, there must be something deeper here. There must be something else that this woman is to learn through the tragic loss of her son. And so all Elijah can do is cry out to God for an answer, for something. And so, guided by God, he does what he does in verse 21. 
The Bible doesn't explain why he uses this technique or this method, but he does what he does, I believe, guided by the Lord. Verse 21, he stretched himself out on the child three times, and he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. Elijah's words are desperate words of prayer, and yet his words are the word of God. And that's the key. Elijah's prayer is the word of God intended to minister to the heart of this poor widow. And this is his word to minister to all of Israel who's, who's worshiping Baal. And this word is to minister to our hearts too. The words of this prayer. O Lord my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. You know, sometimes we forget that this story told about this woman living in Sidon perhaps doesn't have to do too much with Israel, but the, this narrative is intended for Israel itself. Although nobody's around to witness this story, this is for Israel. They are to learn a lesson from this. This is meant for them as much as it is for the widow and by by extension, this is meant just as much for us as well, too. This is to minister to our hearts as well, ministering God's gracious will to bear on our lives, like it was intended for this widow and for Israel. God purposely brought tragedy to minister to her his saving grace. And so Elijah's prayer is a desperate plea for the boy's life. Oh Lord, I pray, oh God, I pray, let this child's soul come, come back to him. Notice what Elijah has to basically pray for. He has to pray for the impossible, what seems impossible. And he also prays when all hope is lost. It's not that the boy is almost dead. No, he's dead. And then tilt to pray for a dead person. If this widow is to have any hope contrary to all reason for having hope and to keep trusting in God even when he killed her son, why then Elijah must certainly pray with hope for the boy's life even while he's dead. And isn't that characteristic of the challenges of our Christian faith? To believe the impossible as well. Uh, to believe that God can make all things new. That God can take this earth so full of corruption and pollution and brokenness and make something brand new out of it, a new heavens and a new earth. That God can even bring life out of barrenness, out of a barren womb that God can even bring life out of death, that God can produce faith where there has been unbelief, and that God can secure forgiveness when there's only sin and offense to God, and to believe that God can bring us righteousness when we stand condemned. That's asking a lot of God, isn't it, congregation? 
But it is the challenge and at the heart of our Christian faith to believe only what God can do. We can think of our forefather Abraham who was called to, to believe contrary to all hope when his body was as good as dead and that of his wife Sarah as well. She'd been barren all her life in the first place and yet still to hope in God's promise that he would give her a son at this time next year and that he'd be the one in whom all the families of the earth would be blessed. Isn't that an awful lot to ask of God? No, because with him all things are possible. He gives his word to us and it's for the believing, never the doubting, only the believing. And yet when push comes to shove, we just got to simply keep on going with that faith right against all the odds, so to speak, when hope seems gone. And in that kind of capacity, Elijah prayed this anguishing prayer of his faith. You could ask the question, well, where else could he turn to? What other God could he trust in? There was no other power to rely on. There was no other way to give this poor woman hope and faith. And if, if it wasn't going to happen, if it wasn't going to take place, then why in the world do we even have a Christian faith? You see? It's got to overcome all the obstacles and the trials and tragedies of life and all that we have coming to us because of our sin. And so Elijah must do and pray the so-called impossible prayer. There's no other way he could possibly verify the truth of God's word to her or to Israel or to us. Elijah must pray, can't do anything else, and God must act. And I say that humbly, God must now act. He must make good his salvation because there's no way in the world we can do it, that's for sure. God must come to the fore and he must do the impossible. And you know what? So far in redemptive history, no person had ever been raised from the dead yet. Elijah prays for what has never happened before. Yet he believes that God is able to do such, such a thing. He doesn't know the outcome like we do. And so he prays. Trusting God would somehow verify the truth of his word to this woman. And yes, once again to all Israel too. And certainly for us as well. To verify the truth of his word. That he is not a hard God. That he is not an unforgiving God. That he is a God who is full of grace. And the promises of his word are yes and true. They are even amen in the Messiah. But the promises of his word will usher into blessing upon blessing. And even forgiveness, yes, for this poor woman's sin as well. Through the promise of a Messiah, of salvation, and of life forevermore 
All of this is ultimately at stake here if God cannot verify the word that he has brought to her in the first place. You see, God has come into her life and he must now make it happen too all the way. Otherwise, what was the point of God ever coming to this woman if now he must sort of leave her and let her fall through the cracks with a dead son and say, well, see you later. No, no, there's a purpose here. And yet for us, it's, it's this as well. Is God's word to be trusted no matter how bad the circumstances are in your life? God brought his word home to this pagan widow. And how now is she supposed to believe it? Elijah can only do what God leads him to do. And that is to pray for God to give his soul back to him again. God, you see, after all, is the giver of life. He is the creator of all our souls. He is the one who gives. He is the one who takes. He is the one who gives back again. And as Elijah prays fervently, so also we read in 22, the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. In the third place congregation by this miracle, God uh, by, by God's miracle, the widow confesses that his word is true. God verifies his word in this way so that she says, confesses it's true. Now the Bible doesn't tell us anything here about whether or not this woman was utterly astonished or filled with joy that her son was brought back to life, but the Bible only records what I believe is truly important here, her testimony now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. Up until this time she was not yet fully persuaded of this truth, but now she is and realizes this truth is for me too. This truth is not just for Elijah, this is not just for the children of Israel, but this is for me too. This is for her as well. What a thing that the living God of Israel is also a God who loves her as well. And that he is all powerful for her too. And furthermore, when she, she says, I know that by this you are a man of God, she realizes Elijah was not some self-appointed prophet who was simply full of all his own wisdom and his own magic, but that he was a man of God, that he was a servant of the Almighty who gives life and who is more powerful than death. It means one thing. It's like the bells suddenly go on in her heart and she says, by this I know. You're a man of God, and the word of your mouth is a truth. In other words, his word's got to be true. 
There's no other explanation. They've got to be true because of what he's just done for my son. His word was to be trusted after all. And how much did Israel have to be convinced of this lesson as well and know this miracle as well? They could no longer willy-nilly dismiss Elijah as some kind of a weird, wacko prophet who has an irrelevant message whom we can ignore because Baal, why, he is the God we want to serve. No. By this I know, she says, that the word of God in your mouth is true and that it works for good in my life. And that Israel ought to know, yes, God's word is true no matter what the circumstances we are in. This widow sees that through Elijah, God revealed divine truth and divine power to not only stop the rain, not only keep her bin a flower full, but also bring life to her dead son. She saw that the living God of Israel has power over life and of death. And I believe the realization was overwhelming her heart and she was coming to see that her greatest joy in life and her greatest hope was not the fact that the bin of flowers stayed full. Her greatest joy was not that the jar of oil didn't run dry. Her greatest joy and hope was not to be her material possessions and all the money she had in the bank now. Her greatest joy and hope was not even the fact that her son was raised from the dead. You know, sometimes we can get our greatest joy out of our kids and our grandkids and how precious a gift it is. But she was to know her greatest joy was not even in, the, in God returning her son to her, but that her greatest joy, her greatest hope was to be in God himself. The one who gave her all these things. And to confess your word is the truth. It's utterly reliable. It's completely trustworthy. It is saving to my soul. And she could confess that God was not here to punish her for her sin or hold her sin glaringly in front of her as an awful rap sheet against her and leave her in her sin and say, Ah, oh, woman, you deserve it. No. But through this, he was graciously leading her to believe in him by this miracle. Letting her, letting all of Israel and you and me see the glory of his grace. The glory of his goodness. And yes, of his power. Talk about power to raise the dead. And see in this his wonderful loving care that he's a God to be trusted. He's a God to be feared, yes, for sure. A God to be loved. You know what? He's a God that any man, woman, or child weighed down with a ton of all their sin can come to unafraid and he will receive you when you come confessing your sins and knowing your unworthiness 
and then know he is a God to be trusted absolutely. He's not going to squash you in your sin and leave you, but show you the glory of his grace to pardon all your iniquities. For some of us, our life may have been pretty black, pretty awful, pretty bad. This poor pagan widow had worshipped Baal all her life. Talk about a woman loaded down with guilt and shame and who knows what all her history had been. But the Lord suffered such a one to come to him and through her to verify the truth of his promises that he is to be trusted, that he is a God to, of whose word it is to be received completely, a God in whom we obtain life from the dead. She said, now by this I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth. Wow. She experienced peace that passes all understanding. Now I need to add a caveat here briefly. The lesson here is not congregation, that if your child is really sick or you have a loved one on their deathbed, you just pray hard, 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 long and long enough and finally God will hear you and he'll heal your child or heal your husband or your wife. No, that's, that's not the lesson, of course. We, we know that, right? We know that the wages of sin is still death, Romans 6:23. We know that we do deserve to die. We do deserve to go to hell. The wages of sin is still death. But the gift of God is eternal life in our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what God was demonstrating and giving to this poor woman. That the gift of God is eternal life in the believing of his messianic promises. And so that she could have hope. Because you know what? Some years later this poor woman was going to die too. And her son was going to die again too. But that death was not to have the last word or the victory but the divine mercy and the divine power of God that flowed through his word to tell us, yes, God's word is to be trusted. It is something that is for sure. That it conveys the grace of God and overcomes sin and death and hell and Satan and the whole works. Even when it's simply spoken through an ordinary man like Elijah. Yet a prophet of God, he was. And that is how, brothers and sisters, God works to accomplish his saving grace to the world, to convey his astonishing, powerful grace through ordinary sinful men using the extraordinary power of his Holy Spirit, bringing the word of truth to bear upon our sinful state. Is there another God that you know of that could do this? Was Baal up to the task? Well, we see Baal showed no divine mercy to this woman here. 
Baal had no divine power to help her whatsoever. He had no divine words of comfort. He couldn't offer any consolation to her poor soul. Forget it. Baal could offer no salvation. Baal had no power over death. And that's how all the gods of man's imagining are. They're all like Baal. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? All the gods of this age, all the gods of this world or of the ancient world are all in the same camp. They are all utterly worthless, useless, dead, of no avail to anybody except to leave us in our sin and in our despair and misery and in our ruin. That is what Baal was proving himself to be in the land of Sidon and to this poor widow. All the gods indeed, people of the Lord, they're all an illusion. They are all a lie. But the word of the living God from the mouth of his holy prophets is the truth. Always. And it's to be trusted completely. Why? Because his word was also verified and fulfilled in somebody else who was put to death and then raised from the dead as well to prove that the word of God is true. Our Lord Jesus Christ. His death was the only sin atoning sacrifice for the sin of all the world. And his resurrection from the dead was the sure sign of any man's justification if he should believe in him. Brothers and sisters, these events were written for your believing, for the hope of the resurrection of your body as well from the dead. As that poor little boy was raised, an indication of the power of God and the grace and the intent of God to save all who call upon him while he is near, to all who call upon him in the midst of their desperateness and tears and misery and heartbreak and ruin, in the midst of the throes of death, here is a God whose word is true, to be tr- his word to be trusted completely for your life and your own resurrection from the dead. Amen.